This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. So, safe to say President Trump feeling pretty lucky last night. Uh, He did give, of course, his State of the Union address uh, this evening or last evening. He talked about many things, including the stock market. Let's put, though, some perspective on this. I feel like this story is a must-read, and it is among our most read on the Bloomberg Terminal today. It's my favorite thing on the Bloomberg today. I know. I know. It's It's great. so smart. So, John Authors is the smart individual who wrote it. He's senior editor of Bloomberg Markets. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. We do love this story. Both Jason and I read it. Coming in this morning. So tell us a little bit about uh, your headline on it or the editor's headline on it was fascinating. Trump winning like a Napoleonic general. But tell us a little bit about what you wrote about it, what what you looked at. Well, the point was that Napoleon's greatest requirements of his generals was that they be lucky. And Trump, in my opinion, at least when it comes to the stock market these days, is very, very lucky. So that's the main point. Beyond that, I'm not generally a political commentator, but when somebody uh, important makes some assertions about stock markets and 401ks, And he talks about the market, especially the equity market, a lot. The president does. Yes. He seems to think, and I've thought this for a long time, it's a very unwise strategy, which um, is going to work for him probably because the likelihood at this point is that uh, there's going to be enough liquidity, enough easy money around to keep the stock market up and buoyant and looking good for him until the election. Uh, I always thought, uh, and I think it's merely a matter of good luck for him that this hasn't happened, that he was unwise to boast about the stock market, to, to try to give the impression that he was responsible for it, simply because he inherited an already pretty expensive stock market. Right. Um, that said, he's had a very good stock market under his remit. There's no question about that. He still uh, felt the need to. Uh, uh, he still felt the need to uh, exaggerate it, um, which uh, impresses me. So, so has up. he exaggerated it in terms of the returns and how great they were? In you know. Yes. I mean, since my, I'm, I'm, re, I'm quoting from the State of the Union text here. Since my election, the United States stock markets have soared seventy percent. Um, no, they haven't. I mean, the S&P is, uh, on a total return basis, is 64% up. Price return basis, 54 If you widen it and include smaller caps, it's a bit less than that. Um, and then, all of those millions of... This is just wonderful um, Trumpian grammar. Of all those millions of people with 401ks and pensions are doing far better than they have ever done before, with increases of 60 70 80 90 and even 100%. Um, if you've made 100% in a, a 401k since the election in November 1968, you've, you've made more than 25% per annum. Right. You don't have many bonds in there. Right. Very few people would suggest that people should have nil bond allocations in a 401k. Right. Um, Hyperbole so, is his friend. Well, I'm sure somebody out there yes. has made 100% in their 401k. Um, it's well done them for taking a risk that came off rather than any particular credit to the to the president and so john 
such an interesting take on that. While mm. we have you here, though, I have to ask you about the coronavirus. You, you've been watching <laughs> the market so yes. closely for a number of years, safe yes. to say. And I do wonder, you know, we've been looking around and, and sort of sort of begging all each of us for historical perspective here. How do you look at the coronavirus? How do you get your arms around it from a market perspective? Well, with great difficulty. Yeah. Um, we don't have, it, it is, what, what has happened so far cannot be called a green, uh, uh, green a black swan. Okay, what, what has happened so far is, is really not, not that severe. But plainly, what could confront us here would, would qualify if we have something on the scale of uh, the Spanish flu that came right. after the First World War, 50 million people dead. I have no idea, because I'm not an epidemiologist, whether that's a serious possibility. But as soon as you're even raising risks like that, where you can't gauge the exact probability and you can't gauge the extent of the damage if they happen, then you're getting into black swan territory. You're getting into the classic kind of territory which markets find it difficult to judge. Now, at this point, I would say that we're that there are two judgments being made. One is that we can at least price in a certain amount of damage to the Chinese economy mm -hmm. that wasn't going to be present, that didn't need to be valued in a month ago. Simply, simple, straightforward, you right. just need to look at uh, traffic figures and so on. Just the mere fact of extending the Because you can look at you know, yeah. Disney closing a park, you can look at Nike's yeah. supply chain, you can look at Hyundai, things like that. It's bound to have an effect right. on the Chinese economy, period. We, we don't know how bad it'll be yet, but we know it's going to be worse than we thought it was going to be. So... There has plainly been a move out of anything that's imposed, exposed to the Chinese economy. What is intriguing is that for the time being, we are treating it as a total certainty that there will be no direct effect on uh, the Western world, right. um, which I think is quite likely, but isn't a certainty yet. Therefore, I'm nervous about quite how complacent the markets are here at the moment the idea is um again this gets back to right. donald trump being lucky um the feds just can't raise rates while there is any risk of this around right. so stocks keep going up and i will say that there's going to be an article in the magazine um that's looking at the virus that talks about while many people are betting that there isn't any impact on the u.s you know the longer this goes on um, it starts to, especially because we do have global supply chains right. and supply and demand is a global thing, it does become a more significant impact. John Authors always makes us smarter. He's senior editor at Bloomberg Markets. He's in our interactive broker studio. And check him out at Bloomberg.com to read the story in its entirety. Yeah. Can you name that band? Uh, You're close. Yep. Yeah. Uh -huh. Aha. Uh Aha. -huh. <laughs> There you go. JC Kelly, right. man, you're moss grown yeah, over there. There you go. So, aha. Uh, aha. Yeah. Uh -huh. Take on me. Take on me. Uh, you have ICE, Intercontinental Exchange, saying, hey, eBay, we'd like to actually take on you. Where the heck did this come from? Uh, totally left field, Carol. So, wow. uh, a lot of people in the industry, including all the analysts, are a little bit of, uh, you know, scratching their heads yesterday and today going, where did this Still come from? Still scratching their heads. Still scratching their heads. Obviously, ICE is known as, uh, you know, the owner of the New York Stock Exchange, very famous commodities exchange. So, we're talking wholesale capital markets, you know, the type of people who read the Bloomberg uh, 
terminal and not really Main Street people. Right. Then you have eBay and everyone's sort of wondering, why would ICE want to get into, you know, the, the retail space? And there still isn't a clear answer. And yet. I know that this oh. is outdated, but like when I read this, I was like, <laughs> stocks and bonds, Beanie Babies. Stocks and bonds, Beanie Babies. I have switch. some Beanie Babies still in my uh, in my. You should basement. sell them on eBay. <laughs> so, <laughs> or yes, on ICE. It's, a, it's an online marketplace. Yes. So it's not just the Beanie Babies in Grandma's Attic. It's, you know, other things as well. And um, obviously eBay, I think, has been on the block for a little while now in terms of, uh, you know, potential. Yeah, I mean, uh, eBay needs something, yeah. right? What are the potential synergies, though? Help me understand this. I think it shows that there's a shift in direction from ICE. So obviously, today they bought a company that does sort of loyalty programs and mm. kind of ag- aggregates loyalty programs and points and perks and things for, for consumers. So there is a kind of dipping their toes into the retail space. Um, so that that is potentially a diversification of the business that's very, very much a wholesale and, uh, you know, kind of institutional business. I mean, it's also worth pointing out. I mean, what? Intercontinental Exchange is a company based down in Atlanta. Nobody really saw them coming. I mean, even in this, even when they yeah. bought the New York the Stock Exchange, they were like, yeah. wait, what is this? Uh, like, the consolidation of the exchanges, right? Yeah, I mean, they really sort of turned that on uh, very quickly. So... I mean, maybe they see something that the rest of us don't. And the one thing that's really important here is that Jeff Sprecher, the CEO of ICE, is very, very well-renowned as being a really sharp and aggressive operator. So he was definitely a visionary in commodity markets, you know, brought the markets electronic, brought the New York Stock Exchange. So when there are whispers around him, People take it seriously. Yeah. Well, That's, I, I think, why they... If it's like, is there some Jeff Bezos, you know, grand plan thinking? You know, if you think about what Jeff, Jeff Bezos has created out of Amazon and the evolution of what it started and where it is, like, I, I'm trying to figure out, is there some comparison to be made here? Well, I think there's industry context. So there have been a lot of exchange deals uh, in recent years. And on top of that, Sprecher has said himself that he is constantly looking for opportunities. So he says they the company meets every two weeks to mm-hmm. talk about potential M&A. So it's really on the mind. And uh, while people are a little mystified by this most recent um, cloud floating in the air, I think this is a signal that they're on the hunt. So that's something we take seriously. And so the folks on Wall Street, they're sort of raising an eyebrow. But what does this portend maybe for deal making in general, as you talked to folks? And some of its rivals, right? Whether it's um, what London Stock Exchange and the CME Group, right? Right. Yeah, and I think this this signals that the exchange space is ripe yeah. for different types of deals, that the exchanges kind of have that. That's a very mature business. So how do they diversify? How do they set up the companies for the future? A lot of them have pivoted to technology right. and data as a key Well, focus. I'm glad you said that because remember when we caught up with uh, Adina Friedman, CEO mm-hmm. of the NASDAQ, yeah. uh, last well, look year, what they're doing, we right? were talking a lot about them essentially selling their technology. So, I mean, the more you sort of unpack it, the more it at least makes a, a little more sense and yeah you know well, yeah. we'll a platform right that can be used to do so many different things if you think about um all the things that are going on online now think about still how much can be kind of put into that environment right yes how much can go online how much can be electronified and the exchange space to be honest is very mature right. it's extremely advanced so bottom line just got about 20 seconds is this going to happen how, like what's the likelihood that this actually goes from us chatting about it to it, us actually saying okay it's done so the i statement said that ebay has not engaged in any meaningful way so that to me signals that the two are not tangoing um that the uh you know the the takeover target was not interested right. uh, but that doesn't mean that 
that this is the end of the story. And there's been some activists, right, on eBay? Yes. Yeah, Starboard's so been kind in of there, pushing uh, it along here. And Elliot, too. All right. Uh, Lenan Nguyen, thank you so much, finance reporter for Bloomberg. Two days in a row we get Wait uh, what? Lenan. Wait what? Brought to you by? Because by, exactly. <laughs> I feel like there's exactly. one almost every day. Uh, fun fact about uh, Jeff Sprecher. Do you yes. know who his wife is? Now the junior senator from Georgia. No, I did not know that. Appointed by the governor uh, to fill the seat of and uh, Johnny Isaacson. Power couple. There you go. Yeah, totally. Serious power couple. All right, Lynn Nguyen. Thank you so much. Power individual. Thank you. I'm sorry. So sorry. Yeah, that about sums it up. Even the headline of the story by Eric Newcomer and Josh Green today says, quote, we feel really terrible, says CEO, whose app roiled Iowa caucus. I mean, it almost feels like a headline from The Onion to some extent. Uh, That's the world we're living in. Eric Newcomer joins us on the phone in New York City. Joel Weber, the editor of the magazine, he's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Eric, I want to start with you because we had a chance to visit with you late yesterday as all of this was sort of coming undone or had come undone and you told us some great stuff. What have we learned in the intervening time period about this app and this company? You know, I think this interview, besides the apology, just really distilled that there were two big sort of technological problems with the app. One, that it was hard for people to use, whether that's because of security or because the app was poorly designed. And then the other was that when the app actually relayed the data to the Iowa caucus authorities, you know, there were all these uh, warning signs that caused them to sort of go into a panic and recheck the data and fix problems. So there, there were just, it was a perfect storm of these two big sort of technological problems. So Eric, um, really curious about um, how you guys got this interview. Well, you, you know, I, Josh had, you know, written a, profile of acronym earlier so i sort of got him to help out and sort of reach out to some people and then we sort of tag team them and then finally after we'd done sort of a four byline story on uh you know the situation we you know i got on the radio then sort of at the end of the day uh the ceo said okay you know i should probably speak to the public and we were sort of the channel for that and so when you guys talked to him, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was like he makes this clear distinction between, you know, any kind of manipulation with voting, which did not happen and basically right. a software problem. Yeah. I mean, he's even defending his app. He's like, oh, the math worked, you know, the problem, you know, so you spend all this time building this app, you, you know, and you, the math, you know, you have all these caucus chairs trying to figure out multiple rounds of voting. But then when they actually transmitted the data of the DNC systems, the CEO is saying, you know, that's where we actually like sent basically what turned out to be sort of the wrong numbers, which made the results not work out. And then they had to go back and literally change the code. So the transmission is the stage where they say there was a huge technical. Which didn't failure. happen until like 10 or 11 p.m., at which point everybody's resorting to phones. The phones are taking 20 <laughs> right, minutes right. and chaos yeah. ensued. And here we are two days later and we still don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's. It's a disaster. So, Eric, should they have been able, though, to anticipate this? Should they have been able to do some kind of testing? I mean, sometimes you don't know something's going to not work until you're actually in it. And this was a new process. But I do wonder how much leeway do we give them to say, okay, I kind of understand. Or do we say, wait a minute, this should have been working perfectly. And they had all the opportunities to make sure it did. Yeah, I think not a lot of leeway personally. I mean, we've seen other stories 
talking about how there were warning signs, you know, uh, I think one of Senator Wyden's staff members flagged this. There were other people saying, you know, how much has this app been tested? And then there's sort of stories about the fact that this app was being run out of, you know, test flight on Apple, so that meant people couldn't even download it from the app store. So there are all these warning signs. And, you know, the CEO told us that they hadn't done anything election-related before. So this was sort of the first experiment in a very serious moment, you know, the start of the Democratic presidential nominating process. So I think, you know, just you have a sort of a developer who's new to this. Uh, it hasn't sort of been properly tested. You know, I, I think there were warning signs before this. So, you know, he's sorry, but I think there are legitimate reasons to say, you know, you might have seen this one coming. I I think they get like basically no wiggle room whatsoever right. on this. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's a big deal. You've got months, weeks to prepare for it. People hadn't even used the app until they're trying to actually put in the final totals, and that's not working. I mean, it's like an unmitigated disaster. Well, and you know, it, not to be glib about it, but I was talking about this with my kids last night, and they were essentially saying, "So, so what happened?" And you know, I was trying to sort of explain to them that. You know, imagine giving this technology to people who just are unfamiliar with it. Um, you know, we know the sorts of people. Everybody's been to vote before, and you know, it's largely right. volunteers, and it's you know, folks who you know might not be as conversant with like the latest and greatest technology. Makes shall me I say. long for the the <laughs> New York kind of like a lot of returns. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just like. Ex but I will say one of the things I loved in our discussions yesterday with you, Eric, is that this whole idea that Silicon Valley tends to love the Democratic yes. Party and there's a, right. a com yep. nice conversation back and forth. So here it is, Silicon Valley, you would think the Democratic Party would be the most high tech when it comes to political parties. And yet here you have really the Republicans seeming uh, out front and center with all of this. Yeah, I mean, you sort of, you know, they're not sending us their best, I guess. I don't I don't quite get why this is the case and sort of, you know, I mean, I think it was a pretty small team. I think it was 10 people working on this Shadow app, you know, they I mean, you have to have a first time, but doing it the first time for sort of the Iowa caucuses, it just it just feels like, you know, this was not the most sophisticated operation. And the other thing the CEO is saying is he's trying to downplay how much this isn't like a voting machine, right? I mean, this is a caucus, so it's more of a tool, but it's relaying, you know, the 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 calculation to figure out who won the caucus. So, so yeah, it was just a very sensitive piece of technology that I think, you know, there were lots of warning signs and that this clearly wasn't, you know, camera ready. Right. Well, and to that end, you know who's going nowhere near this? Nevada. Yes. Nevada was like, right. we're good. Yeah, exactly. I know we're on the hook for it. But get out your pens and papers, <laughs> exactly. Nevadans. Uh, we're going to be doing it old school. Hanging uh, chads look fun at this point. All right. Eric Newcomer, we really appreciate it. Startup reporter for Bloomberg. He has been all over this story. Uh, a co-byline with Josh Green, uh, who, as described, was able to leverage some previous reporting. I, I have to point out a great story that uh, Josh did about uh, acronym. Is that what it's called? I'll yeah. put it out on Twitter as yeah. well.
back in uh, late November. So I'll put really it out smart. on Twitter so you everybody know, can. Trying to understand yeah. sort of the digital strategy on the Democratic side. And how and they were supposed really to fight back, to yeah, really, absolutely. against um, what the Trump party did uh, and the Trump team uh, heading into 2016. I do want to mention Intelsat, a red headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. Intelsat said to weigh a Chapter 11 filing on its FCC C-band plan. I should point out the stock, uh, before it was halted, was down almost 13%. I mean, you're talking about a $3.47. This has been an ongoing yeah, and, saga and just as a reminder, Intelsat. basically, Intelsat is disagreeing with the government and specifically the FCC about an auction around Spectrum. Uh, or satellite uh, airwaves, I should say. Right, and this is if right if the U.S. regulators don't um, increase the amount of compensation the company would receive for giving up some of its airwaves. There's right. a lot of that going on. Our thanks to Joel Weber as well, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, always bringing us the best and most important stories of the day. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week now. Jim McGregor is an author and a journalist, former Wall Street Journal China bureau chief. His book, One Billion Customers: Lessons from the Front Lines of Doing Business in China, described as the must-read for anyone doing or looking to do business in China. Today, he is a senior counselor for APCO Worldwide. It's an independent global public affairs and communications consulting firm. And lucky for us, he's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Nice to have you here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I think we want to jump in right to the virus and an understanding of um, how China's handling it, what it means. I mean, we make the comparison, Jim, to SARS, but China's a very different country than what it was in terms of its role in the global economy and really its its role as our global supply chain. It's very interesting what's going on. I've been out of there since mid-January, um, but I'm in touch with um, lots of people that are running businesses there. And this is, um, the amount of quarantine that's going on is incredible. I mean, every company has to check on their employees and then send data into the government on how their employees are doing. And their employees are not working, they're all at home. A friend of mine who runs a school in Shanghai, um, they have to check on every every kid every day, and by nine in the morning, up, uh, upload that that information to the education bureau. I mean, this this the you know as you know, this is a much more contagious virus than SARS, but it also um, is, it has two to four percent killing rate, where it was ten percent with SARS and thirty percent with MERS, but. It's much more um, contagious, contagious, right? and uh, five million people left Wuhan before they closed it down, and so five million people went around uh, are elsewhere in China. I want to follow if I can. Just, do you feel like we were told about it as soon as China really had an understanding that it was a problem? I think there is a lot of questions about the flow of data that's coming from the country and how much you know is true. Or is well, it much worse than maybe we're hearing? Actually, it's quite interesting because when it first started out, the party did what the local guys did what they do. They suppressed the information. And, uh, you know, these first case was December 1st. They didn't close down Wuhan until January 23rd. But the local, the local mayor, when they went after him for covering it up, he said... I can't make any decisions. I have to send the right. information up. He That was astounding in the era of Xi Jinping that an official pointed fingers up away from themselves. This is unprecedented. But this guy said, I'm not going to take the fall for this. Right. And then so the information came out late. 
Um, and now I think they're really trying. I think they're trying to be transparent because they're really under the gun. And now it's now it's this mass movement campaign. The papers are saying things like um, Xi Jinping is hands on. He's making all the decisions. They're wrapping it around him, and that we have to struggle together. Um, and meanwhile, they have they have slogans that, that say things like, "Yeah, if you visit your friend today, you'll be visiting his tomb tomorrow." Oh my goodness! And you know these propaganda slogans everywhere because wow. they want people to be isolated yeah but they don't have the facilities i have uh f- friends of mine running multinationals in china who are getting calls from the mayor of their town saying please 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 get us some gloves get us some coveralls yeah. get us some san- sanitizer for a communist party official to call a foreign company and kind of say we really need your help um, is astounding right so how this is all going to play out in the long term i think it's going to last quite a while actually um the head months do- oh months easily the head doctor um of, of the committee that's overseeing this um, who was, came out with, with SARS, built his reputation. He originally predicted it would peak right now. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, he said it's going to peak in two weeks from now. Um, businesses are all supposed to open up on the 10th of February. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not going to happen. Uh, schools on the 17th. Most of the foreign businesses are sitting offshore now, right? Um, because they, you know, like me, they were off for Chinese New Year's, and they're just staying offshore. Right. If you're onshore, you can't leave. What are you going to do? Swim? Yeah. You know, the, the airplanes are shut down. Sixty-two countries have cut, have, have, have stopped their border. So, are you trying to get back? I will, but will. not tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so, you know, from the perspective of foreign businesses. What's the next step for the? Is it just wait and see? Because you know we're starting to hear from Disney, we're starting to hear from Nike, we're starting to hear from Hyundai. You know the implications for their businesses. What do you, as you hear from uh, your colleagues and and friends who are who are working for multinationals, what are they doing right now? They are trying to figure out what they do. Um, supply chains are dead. Um, the even customs is not open. Uh, and remember, China's no matter what the trade war did, China's a manufacturing center of the world, and it's the center of all these supply chains. Um, people that have opened up can't get employees because employees are not employees are are quarantined. Right. Um, people with food do food companies have to be open, and they're having a, a real struggle. So everybody is day by day trying to figure this out, day by day, and they, um, and because it is so contagious. Um, this quarantine has to be very strict. And how long can that last? I don't know. But if they, if they all of a sudden open it up, mm-hmm. then what happens? Right. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Continue our conversation with Jim McGregor, author, journalist, so much more. He's seen so much in China. And we talked a lot about the virus, Jim, and the implications of that. But you can't really talk about that and China without talking about the implications of that. But the broader implications of the trade war between the U.S. and China. Help us synthesize those things. Well, actually, it's been very interesting because the trade war, the, the narrative in the trade war from China with its people was that we are, we are on the rise, and this is about the West keeping us down, led by America. We are a victim. And so we got a self-reliance. We've got to go ahead together. We've got to stick together. And now this virus is glued onto that. Mm-hmm. It's about this. They're calling it a people's war, that we're all together. The world's against us. They're closing borders to us. Uh, Racism. 
Wilbur Ross is saying these things about moving right. supply chains out, and so is Kudlow, which is pretty shameful, actually. Um, and and so the, the 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 we're all together. It's it's all about us taking care of ourselves. And I tell you, this trade deal. Um, it's so one-sided. Lighthizer got a strong deal, but it's completely one-sided. Why would the Chinese agree to a one-sided deal? Why would they agree to a deal that left most of the tariffs on? Because they're buying time. They are, China is focused on decoupling from America, uh, from not being dependent on America. There's 20 Chinese soybean investments in Russia last year. Um, they are there. The, there's four leading groups, including, and the next five-year plan is going to be woven through with, um, with reducing and eliminating dependence on the United States. Can, I want to ask you something. Is there anything wrong with that? Think about the U.S. and its history. Right? We wanted to be independent from England, right? And there was a revolutionary war over it. Like, so I do wonder, is there something different about what China is doing in trying to be more independent from the United States versus what other nations have done, you know, trying to kind of stand on their own? Is there something different? Is there something more sinister? Because I think we see it that way. And I'm trying to feel like, are we just being so U.S. centric in our, in our view on this? You know, it's just a difference in the systems. I, I was around some senior Chinese, retired Chinese officials recently, and they were, they were saying, look, America could tolerate the differences in our systems when we were small, but now we're big, um, they can't. We knew this battle was coming. We're ready for it. We're together, and, and, and we're going to work our way through this. Um, it, it's very much just the difference between the Chinese system and the Western system. Right. And that, that is, you know, that, how can you trust a Chinese company because they'll have to do what the government says, you know, on and on and on. And so we, the world's never faced anything like China before. This is not, some people in Washington look at it as Japan when we were doing those trade negotiations. I look at it as Iran, as this terrible right. threat. Others as the Soviet Union. It's none of those. Right. It's a very strong commercial um, entity that, has a much different system than we do. Just 15 seconds, you gotta be quick because we gotta run on, but yeah. does the world go with China or does the world stay with the US? The world does a bit of splitting. Right. Okay. As the and, com world and, and companies are doing that now. They're, yeah. they're looking at how do they have separate ways of doing things in these two different worlds. As Great the world tends to Come do. Back. Thank you so much. Yeah. Great to see you. Jim McGregor, author, journalist, senior counselor for the moment at APCO Worldwide. He says he had an amazing career already in China. More to come there. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And just about 11 minutes go into uh, today's trading session. We are hmm, just off our highs with the S&P and the Dow. NASDAQ, though, a little bit more pressure on that index. Thank you, Tesla, as Tesla uh, really taking a dive today after the big rally it's seen in 2020. Let's talk about the uh, market today. George Schulte is with us, founder of Schulte Asset Management, based in Rybrook, New York, uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Wednesday 
I'm just going to ask you because we seem to not be able to get enough, and it's not just us, but the general public. We were just talking about, you know, searching uh, on Google. You start to type in a question, and it comes up, um, you know, about Tesla specifically. What do you make of a stock like Tesla? Like, I'm sure clients come to you and say, "George, should I buy? Should I not buy?" I, I think it's a good short here, but you know, boy, that is a momentum play, and it's kind of scary to get in front of something like that. But it's yeah. down today, big. You know, right. I wish I shorted it this morning. Right. Is there anything though fundamentally that you find interesting about Elon Musk and what he's doing there? I think it's a great product, and it's exciting. You know, he's got a great and growing you know customer base, and it's very difficult for the other automakers to compete with that new dynamic. And you're seeing it. I mean, look what happened yesterday with Ford. Mm -hmm. Today, I was just at the GM Investor Day before coming here down on Wall Street on, on, uh, at the New York Stock Exchange. And, and they're doing a great job, you know, converting that company and yeah. to be more of a, you know, new economy type company like Tesla is. And Mary um, Barr really going out on a limb saying, we're going to get rid of old brands. We're going to really focus on self-driving and EVs. And that's, you know, we've had the conversations Jason and I about as a chief executive, right? They, they've got to think about what's the future. And that might be a little painful in the short term. Absolutely. But you've got to think about turning uh, your company to in the right direction. So were you, uh, yeah. were you convinced enough to be buying GM? So we point? are. We already have a stake in GM, okay. and we've held it for some time. Um, the whole theme is zero crashes, zero emissions, and uh, uh, zero uh, zero congestion. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's really compelling. I think it's 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 a story that's somewhat similar to Tesla, mm -hmm. but you really don't get any multiple. I mean, the last couple of years the stock's kind of flat. Yeah, but they are paying a dividend while you wait. Right. I think everybody's waiting with uh, Cruise Automotive. You know, yes. when they'll announce commercial operations. And that's going to be, I think it'll be amazing. Maybe they'll spin that off. That could be a big event for that stock this year. Did they year. give you any indication? No, and they haven't. They've generally not done that yet. But, I mean, there was a lot of discussion about what they're doing at Cruise. And it seems like, you know, I think one of the things they're waiting for, besides just perfecting the safety issue, is they are waiting for, you know, uh, uh, you know federal uh, uh, Department of uh, uh, Transportation approval. Right. So well, that's going to come soon, I think. And notable, even from a personnel perspective, that they put, Dan Amon in charge of that, right? You know, like yeah. it's clearly a, a lot of investment uh, in all aspects in that. Please. What a change too. I mean, that he is now, he used to be buttoned up suit wearer He's like I am. He's an interesting yeah. guy. Now he wears sneakers and jeans to the to the meetings and, and it's fun. Yeah. You know, he's got a beard, uh, no tie. <laughs> what do you make of that change? When you I think see it's that... exciting. You know, that's the way the, few, that, that's that's a technology growth company, right. you know, culture. Well, yeah. we talked with the Verizon CEO too, um, Hans Vestberg. Uh, he'll be featured in the magazine and on our show this weekend, but same thing came in with like kind of a he's like wearing modern like a hoodie. hoodie. <laughs> like it was just, kind of yeah it's like um don't you work for the phone company dude <laughs> that giant yeah. phone company all right talk to us about boeing uh, a little bit because that's a name and yeah exactly we've been watching that uh so closely what do you do with boeing at this moment i think boeing is a good short it's yeah. trading at about 320 dollars a share i think the market really hasn't fully digested all the issues that company is going through it started with the two crashes you know and then the faa suspended operations altogether of the 737 max in march of last year then the company suspended their dividend um but i, th I think maybe the investing community doesn't realize how important 737 MAX is for the business. It's 80% of the company's entire backlog. And, you know, obviously it's a commercial airplane. That segment represents 60% of the company's entire revenue. So you saw revenue plummet uh, year over year. It's gone from uh, uh, 101 billion to 79 billion right now, estimated for this year. And EBITDA dropped from 14 billion to 3 billion. People still have our forecasts on the terminal, still looking for like $94 billion. There's I think 
think that's very optimistic. I think it's also optimistic to assume that they're going to be able to start uh, producing the plane again this summer and flying it again this summer. Um, by Will the way, ever be able to produce it again? Well, nobody's saying that that's a possibility. There, that is a possibility that they just won't be able to produce it, and that would be a disaster. Right? Yeah, I mean, you know? I, you know, folks on Twitter have just kind of kidded, and maybe it's not such a joke, but like. You've got to change the name. You've got to, you, you've got to, and I don't know if that's enough. Rebrand. Yeah. yeah. One of the issues, though, is that they have such a big backlog of orders from all the major airline companies, and they've been settling, you know, lost prof profits claims from those airlines. It's expensive. I think yeah. Southwest, they paid uh, $1.2 billion. You know, the total amount of settlements that they pay out might be over $10 billion. And so if you factor it all in, you know, the company's trading at uh, about 64 times enterprise value to EBITDA right now. So, you know, I think that's a wonderful right short. And so are people just cash. hanging on to it out of hope or people hanging on to it out of kind of historical affinity? Like what, why is the stock trading so high, you think? Yes and yes. Yeah. And I, I think also management has been slow to acknowledge the problems. And of course, now you've seen management turn, turn over yeah. and they're extending the, you know, they're, they're being a little bit more honest with the market about mm -hmm. how long it's going to take to get the plane back. But, you know, there's still uncertainty. I wonder if it's the downside, too, of index funds. It's part of the S&P 500 index, right? And you think about all the money in index. I don't right. know how that plays it's into it. The but, Dow too, right? but I do yeah. wonder, you know, how that kind of shores up a company from even falling further. It's got to be part of it, Carol, because, listen, I mean, if, if, if there are investors that are blindly just buy, buying something, they'll buy anything. Right. right. 64 times EBITDA, who cares? Right. You know? Right. Um, is there a company that you like? So you're sh you'd shorting. <laughs> Do you like anything, George? <laughs> Actually, can I tell you, it's so refreshing to talk with somebody who's shorting things. I really kind of love it. Um, it's just interesting. Another take of the market, right? Yeah. Buyer seller. Um, what's another name that? Well, we like GM. We talked about that already. Yeah. We also like the Met Coal producers. We've yeah. I think we've talked about those yeah. a couple times yeah. in the past. Arch Coal is one of them. There are a couple others. Uh, Warrior Met Coal, Contour Energy. These companies make coal. Not to burn for the, you know, to burn the, and, and, and make electricity. Not the bad coal. Not the bad coal, the steam coal. They, they, they make it to produce steel. And if there's one thing, I think, from last night's presidential State of the Union address that maybe the Democrats and Republicans could get together on, it's an infrastructure bill with the United States. Right. If you have that, there'd be even more demand for steel. I think also Chinese steel demand, you know, it's taking a little bit of a dip this quarter, probably also next quarter, but it's going to come back. Right. And so there's, there's always going to be a need for steel in the global economy. And so these producers of steel, coal, you know, most of them have restructured their liabilities. They have very clean balance sheets. They're paying dividends or they just have tremendous cash flow and no debt at all. And the valuation is so compelling. It's that, under two times EBITDA for And that a one has about a 3% dividend, right? So it's pretty, pretty healthy. Um, yeah. Always fun to talk with you. We really appreciate that you come in uh, loaded to talk about specific names. So it's really a fun conversation. George yeah. Schultze is founder of Schultze Asset Management based in Rybrook, New York, in our interactive broker studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.